Why don't you open your Bibles, if you'd like, to Judges chapter 16. The Old Testament book of Judges and chapter 16. Now Samson went to Gaza, and he saw a harlot there and went into her. When the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, in the morning when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gate posts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Let's pray. Father, tonight, uh, we want to connect with this story, obviously. Uh, it's history, Lord. It really happened. Uh, at the same time, these things we are told are written for our learning. They are physical examples of spiritual truths. Uh, Lord, um, bring all of that to our hearts tonight by your spirit who is our teacher. I am not the teacher. You are the teacher. Your Holy Spirit is here to teach us. Uh, Lord, I'm just a messenger, and uh, we're just here. Uh, I'm here with the rest to, to receive from you. And so just bless our time together in your word. In Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Not my finest hour, but a man's got to go to work. Dwayne The Rock Johnson posted on Instagram. We experienced a power outage due to severe storms causing my front gate not to open. I tried to override the hydraulic system to open the gates, which usually works when power goes out, but this time it wouldn't. Made some calls to see how fast I can get the gate tech on site. But I didn't have 45 minutes to wait, he continued. By this time, I know I have hundreds of production crew members waiting for me to come to work so we can start our day. So I did what I had to do. I pushed, pulled, and ripped the gate completely off myself, tore it out of the brick wall, severed the steel hydraulics, and threw it on the grass. <laughs> the Rock would have been on any director's short list to portray Samson on screen. The fact that they both had an encounter with a gate might give him the edge over some other muscle-bound leads. There have been remarkably few feature films about Samson, but in every one of them, the lead is a muscled guy. I mean, really, it's a great, there's some great stories with Samson, and, and uh, I, I don't understand it. 1949, Samson and Delilah, a buff Victor Mature was the hero. 2013. Not really a movie, but the Bible miniseries uh, by Burnett and Downey Jr., Roma Downey. Uh, Nonzo and Anozi played Samson. He is six foot six inches tall, 280 pounds. He's a gigantic Nigerian fella. And then 2018, you never heard of it. It's a Pure Flix production. It received a 25% tomato meter score on Rotten Tomatoes. But Samson was played by Taylor James, six foot, two and a half inches tall, buff. I'm going to ask you this, just keep it to yourself, but who would you cast as Samson? Who would you cast as Samson? Time's up. I would cast George Costanza from Seinfeld, Jason Alexander. It's obvious. The Philistines were constantly puzzled as to the real source of Samson's strength. If he looked like Nonzo Anozi or The Rock, 
his great strength would have been attributed to long days spent at Planet Fitness. In all of the movies, they always show him just straining. I'm going to get that. You know, and just muscles ripping and stuff, which adds to the understanding that it's his strength and not the Lord's. And his average build would explain why when he finally gave up the secret of his strength to Delilah, he was unaware that he was powerless. It, doesn't, it isn't that his muscles were gone, like that crazy, I, I can't even remember, one of the Batman movies, they had a guy play Bane who like was a blow up doll kind of thing, you know, and it was weird. I mean, so he, he evidently wasn't a muscle builder. Uh, he knew that wasn't the source of his strength. The episode in Gaza simultaneously shows the power of God and the pull of the flesh. The same power by which Samson performed feats of strength was available for him to put to death his flesh. It's just that he rarely availed himself of it. It is the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is available to us. Okay, so that's, uh, that's where we're headed tonight. So verse 1 again. <clears throat> now Samson went to Gaza, and he saw a harlot there, and he went into her. Gaza was deep in Philistine territory and one of its major cities. Commentators are all over the place on why Samson went to Gaza and if she, he should even be there at all. There is something interesting about Gaza that might have drawn him there. Regardless his many failings, Samson was Israel's judge and their champion. We're told in Joshua 11:22, none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel they remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. The Anakim, as you go through the scriptures, were what are called Nephilim. They were the giant cannibalistic offspring we read about in Genesis, uh, offspring of fallen angels mating with women. We did a series here at midweek uh, on uh, the days of Noah. It's a simple read. I think there's eight studies, if, or you can listen to them. They're 20 minutes long, and it'll give you an overview of what was going on during the days of Noah, the kinds of marriages Jesus was talking about, the, the reason why these sons of God, daughters of men, have to be angels mating with human women, all of that stuff. And so these offspring, these giants, these Nephilim, were still around in the time, well, they were around until the time of King David, and then they were eradicated. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked by the Nephilim, but there is one question we should answer. How could there be Nephilim in Israel after the global flood wiped them out? And they're clearly there. They're all over the book of Joshua and Judges and on into the life of David. Uh, I can see only two possibilities. There might be others. Uh, one that's been suggested is that the flood was local, not global, allowing Nephilim to survive in other areas of the world. We would reject that. Noah's flood, we believe, is global, wiping out humans and Nephilim. After all, that was its purpose. It was to destroy all life, not just the local life, uh, you know, of, of uh, Noah's time. The second possibility is that fallen angels once again cohabited with human females and produced offspring who were Nephilim. Now, the argument against that is that the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. But what the Bible does say is that there were giants in the land after the flood, and I, the only way we know that they come about is through the offspring of angels and women, and so it's the best guess. The only other thing I've ever heard is that one of uh, Noah's son's wives carried the Nephilim gene, 
Uh, but again, that would defeat the purpose of the flood because God wanted to start with a whole brand new right DNA. They were messing with human DNA and, and he, he wanted to take care of that. <clears throat> it's interesting, the Nephilim were concentrated in the promised land. I would suggest it was a satanic strategy to reintroduce Nephilim in order to interfere with the Israelites possessing the Holy Land. And guess what? It worked. You remember the story. I'm going to read it to you because it's a fun story, but uh, woo. mic drop. It was an auto. Hey, did you see that? It was like a spontaneous mic drop. Okay, so the Jews left Egypt, you remember that, in Numbers 13, and they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell on the land are strong. Cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. The men said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. So we were in their sight. And so this was the major reasoning for which they refused to go into the promised land. They said, we can't take that land because there are giants in the land like there were in the days of Noah. And we're like grass, they're, these guys are 15, 16 feet tall and they're agile. The Nephilim aren't like, you know, Andre the giant, you know, who, I saw a picture you know, on the internet the other day, it was Andre the giant and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with Arnold Schwarzenegger in one of his Conan the Barbarian movies. He's like tiny, he's like, he's like this big. He looks like a hobbit standing next to those guys. But usually when we talk about giantism, people who have giantism, they're slow moving. They often die young. Andre the di giant died young. Uh, these guys were Goliath-like giants. I mean, and he was a wimp compared to some of these guys. I mean, he was only like 12 feet tall. Uh, but I mean, he was a warrior. You know, he didn't just lumber. You know, he wasn't like, you know, these, these monsters on film, you know, where it takes an hour to punch you. And so, I mean, this guy could, could move and stuff. So this was a real problem to these guys. Of course, you remember Caleb and Joshua said, uh, no, you, <laughs> we got this. And later on, when they did go in the land, Caleb said, bring on the giants, you know, let's go. Let's wipe these guys out. And so giants lived in the promised land until they uh, were eradicated in the days of King David, and they haven't been seen since. Perhaps Samson went to Gaza to confront giants. After all, he was Israel's hero. And this would make a fun afternoon if you were Samson to just go against a giant, knowing that uh, you were, you know, just a shrimpy little wimpy guy, but the power of God was upon you. You remember Doug the dog in the Pixar film Up? He talks through his electronic collar. As he's talking, he will yell out what? Squirrel! When he is momentarily distracted by one running by, and then he loses his train of thought afterwards. 
Whatever Samson's reason for going to Gaza, he sees a harlot and his hormones yell, girl, and that's it. He's like focused on that for the rest of the time. If this were a psalm, the writer might have inserted a salah here, a pause and stop, because it, it would be a, a good place to talk about our own weaknesses. What are my weaknesses? Where do I get tripped up and, and where do you? Those thoughts and behaviors that seem to best you. Maybe you've come to think that you can't overcome them. Uh, and so Samson had, uh, you know, I'll say good intentions. I always like to give Bible characters good intentions. He's the champion. He's come where there are giants. Maybe he didn't come to fight them, but th he knew they were there. Everybody knew they were there. And then while he's serving the Lord, as it were, he gets easily distracted by his flesh and he gives in to the flesh. He forgets the spiritual work that he was going to do. And now he's dominated by his flesh. And so uh, maybe that's my problem tonight. Maybe that's yours. Actually, in, in essence, it's all of our problems from time to time. And so this is a great story for us. God, the Holy Spirit can obliterate them. He can carry them away the way Samson dealt with the Gaza gates. Uh, that's the power that's available to us. And so verse two, when the Gazites or the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night saying, in the morning when it is daylight, we will kill him. I like that they were quiet while they were talking to each other about, hey, in the morning. The Gazites or the Gazites are not our example in this text, but that doesn't mean we can't learn something from them. There was no point in waiting. In fact, it would have been better if they had gone in and got him. No point in putting off the confrontation until the next day. We tend to put off really dealing with the flesh. We don't like to kill our flesh or, or render it dead. Uh, we like to feed it. And, and we, we keep feeding it a little bit, a little bit. You know, uh, we think, I used to think as a young Christian that, you know, the, the stronger you got in the Lord, the weaker your flesh would get, kind of like those mermen in the little mermaid movie, you know, they're all, you know, all shrunken down. But you know what, man, the flesh, it just never goes away. It's a monster. It's always ready to dominate you. And so deal with it. If there's something going on in your life, my life, deal with it as quickly as possible because it can only make matters worse. Now, I can understand in a practical way why these guys didn't want to go at it because, uh, the Philistines didn't have a very good track record against Samson. I mean, he was, uh, he was the guy that won every confrontation. Verse three, and Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gate posts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Samson opted for early checkout uh, and the gates of the city would have been locked and guarded, obviously, the way gates of the city always were in that time. He picked them up and carried them off like they were a backpack. Uh, and again, you have to understand, there's no, he doesn't strain. That's a human invention. He comes to the gates. I mean, just, it's a silly example, but it'd be like me coming to that door and just lifting it off its hinges and carrying it to my car. Uh, I, I can't even do that. Some of you probably could, but you know, that's the idea. And, and it was nothing for him. J.R.R. Tolkien has a way with the written word, obviously. He described a magnificent battering ram. Great engines crawled across the field, and in the midst was a huge ram, great as a forest tree, a hundred feet in length, swinging on mighty chains. Long had it been forging in the dark smithies of Mordor, 
and its hideous head, founded of black steel, was shaped in the likeness of a ravening wolf. On it, spells of ruin lay. Grand, they named it, in memory of the hammer of the underworld of old. Great beasts drew it, orcs surrounded it, and behind walked mountain trolls to wield it. Ooh. In the movie, it took Grand quite a little while to finally splinter the gates of Gondor. Samson didn't break through the gates, splintering them and busting through like Gron. He didn't throw them to the ground and walk off like the rock. And even the rock, you get the impression that, I mean, I can see him straining with those, twisting them and turning them to trying to, you know, and finally ripping them out with all of his strength. He came to the gates, he saw they were locked, he picked them up as if they were a balsa wood prop on a movie set. And then he walked, scholars say, 18 hours carrying them an estimated 40 miles to Hebron and a lot of it uphill. Now this is great, incredible physical feat. It's no wonder none of those who lie in wait dare to challenge him. Hey, let's wait until morning. Let's wait until tomorrow. Hey, he's gone now, what you, oh well, we had our chance, now we missed it, oh well. Let some other city deal with this. What about the gates? Huh. We'll have to build some new ones, I guess, but let's let this alone. The power was equally available to him to overcome his flesh and walk in holiness. That's, that's one of the points, you know, of the story. This, this physical power that he had was, was from God through the Holy Spirit, and it was available to him spiritually to have victory over the flesh. It might be fantastic to be able to perform physical feats of strength. Who remembers the power team? Are you, do you remember the power team? Anybody used to watch weird health and wealth television? Actually, they were nice guys. Seriously, does anybody remember the power team? They were a bunch of, of, of built uh, Christians, you know, just guys that muscular, and, so, and they would rip phone books and, and you know, do feats of strength, and then they would share the gospel. And so they'd gather a crowd in a park or in a stadium or someplace like that, and they would share the gospel. And, you know, especially, they, they weren't geared towards young people, but young people were fascinated by them because they're just rippled guys, you know, and stuff, and they're doing all this stuff. And, and you know, they, they, it wouldn't work if you had a bunch of George Costanzas, you know. Hey, the power team is here, a little bunch of wimpy guys. Hey. I probably can't say wimpy guys anymore, right? We need to edit that out. Are there, I'm sorry, you wimpy guys. I'm a wimpy guy, so how's that? I, I'm identifying as a wimpy guy tonight, so. Now, it might be fantastic, but better to be uh, under the ministry of the Spirit. Um, one final thought for you to meditate on. Let's see, I think I skipped something important. Hang on, wait one second. I wanted to talk about the gates. Oh yeah, here it is. I read a scholarly paper on the gates of Gaza using the excavated gates of other known cities as a model. This is, this is real stuff, it isn't made up. I love the internet because you can research things now and find out 90% of the time you're wrong, but this is, this is true. The author estimated conservatively that the gates could have weighed, I mean, it's a whole gate, hinges, bar, everything. They could have weighed anywhere from five tons to 10 tons. Let's say five tons, just to be conservative. That's a lot of weight, right? And they, and they were nothing. It was like me picking up an iPad. Uh, and he just said, hey, I, I gotta get out of here. You know? and, and he knew they were laying in wait for him. Uh, and, and so he says, well, come after me. I'm busy with these gates. 
And I just think he would have crushed people with those gates. You know, they would have been like the jawbone of an ass to him and stuff or whatever, you know, just like, hey, watch this, bam, bam. I've invented gate killing, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, now one final thought. Jesus said that he would obliterate some gates. He once said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. That's Matthew 16. It's easy to misread what he said. Jesus wasn't saying that hell, which in that passage literally is Hades, was on the offensive. Gates are not a weapon, they are a defense, right? So it wasn't the, we think sometimes of the gates of hell as, as an offense against the church, but that's a defense. Now don't get me wrong, the church most certainly is involved in spiritual warfare. Our enemy goes about like a roaring lion. He has darts and arrows. He sets traps and utilizes lures. He creates obstacles in our way. In the gates of Hades passage, Jesus was announcing his total victory over the supernatural realm. He would die on the cross, rise from the dead. He would crash the gates of Hades. Before his resurrection, the souls of all the dead, both righteous and unrighteous, went to Hades to await resurrection. You remember from the story of the rich man and Lazarus that Hades was divided into two areas, uh, two compartments, for lack of a better word. One was a place of torment for the unrighteous, and one was a place of comfort for the righteous. There's a passage in the book of Ephesians that scholars think involves Jesus and Hades. It's Ephesians 4, 8, and 9, where it says, when he ascended on high, Jesus, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? From that, it's likely that after his crucifixion, but before his resurrection three days later, Jesus was in Hades. When he rose from the dead, he set free the righteous souls that were in Hades, taking them with him to heaven to await their physical resurrection. Jesus' pronouncement about the gates of Hades took place in Caesarea Philippi, situated near a mountainous region containing Mount Hermon. According to one scholar, and I quote, in Jewish tradition, Mount Hermon was the location where the divine sons of God had descended from heaven, ultimately corrupting humankind via their offspring with human women. These offspring were known as Nephilim, ancestors of the Anakim and of the Rephaim. Now that's uh, Jewish tradition, so you know, you know, we can piece it together in the Bible, but it makes sense. And so what you see here is that Jesus is actually declaring war on death and Hades, sort of at the gates of Hades, uh, where they believe that you know, this rebellion first took place. And he won that war by raising from the dead through the resurrection. And that's why he can say of himself, I am he who lives, I was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore, and what? I have the keys of Hades and of death. And what that means to you if you're a believer, is that death is no longer your enemy. It has lost its sting, uh, as we shared tonight a couple of times, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Jesus says, I have the gates to Hades. No one goes there who's a believer anymore to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. The unrighteous still go there, waiting their final resurrection, but not the righteous. And so that power, that Holy Spirit power that made Samson an, an average person with supernatural strength, makes you and I average Christians with supernatural spiritual strength because it's of him and not of us. Amen? All right, John's gonna come back up and lead us in some songs. We're gonna share in communion, uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, even though probably everybody's been here before, I always like to explain that we have you get up and get your own elements once we start singing. 
go back to your uh, seats, pray with those that you're with or gather together with others. Uh, you know, however you wanna celebrate that, family time is a great idea too. Uh, communion, obviously we, we uh, proclaim his death until he comes. And so we're making a proclamation publicly, even though we're mostly Christians, that hey, we're believers. Jesus died and rose again, and, and I believe that. I'm taking these memorials of his death and resurrection, and I believe that he's coming again. He could come any moment. And so he died to rise to come again and bring us home to heaven with him. Uh, so let's pray and then get to it. 